Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today's interview is a bit unusual as Steve Collins, the author of the work we'll be discussing, tragically passed away in early 2018. Fortunately, Justin McDaniel, who is close with Professor Collins and is also a scholar of Theravada Buddhism at the University of Pennsylvania, took it upon himself to edit this book, which at the time of Collins' passing existed as a first draft. The result is Wisdom as a Way of Life, Theravada Buddhism Reimagined, published by Columbia University Press in 2020. McDaniel has written a 45-page editor's introduction to the book, which helps the reader understand the overarching structure and themes of the work. Professor McDaniel, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be on it. I appreciate it. So I just wanted to, since we're talking about a deceased scholar, I just wanted to give a quick uh, thumbnail sketch of his career. He was born in England in 1951, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation at Oxford in 1979. Um, and that work was later turned into his first book, Selfless Persons. He taught then at Bristol in England, and then Indiana and Concordia before ending up at the University of Chicago in 1991, where he taught for 27 years until his untimely death. Besides Selfless Persons, he published the rather massive Nirvana and Other Buddhist Felicities, Utopias of the Pali Imaginaire, in 1998, then a sort of condensed and revised version of that book in 2010 entitled Nirvana, Concept, Imagery, Narrative, and then a Pali Grammar in 2006, and finally the work that we'll be discussing today. And in addition, he wrote many, many articles, and there's a really wonderful collection of some of those articles titled Self and Society, which was published by Silkworm Books in 2014. I've actually used it in some of my classes. So uh, I wanted to begin by asking you what you see as one or some of um, Colin's greatest contributions to the field of Buddhist studies. That's a, that's a big question. Um, yeah, I, um, it's sometimes hard for me to separate the personal and the professional or intellectual when it comes to Steve. Um, I, I actually, I, I, you know, I think a lot of people assumed I was a student um, and I wasn't. Uh, I, uh, I actually applied to study with him um, and I was accepted to the program at UChicago. Um, and then when I was trying to decide um, where to go, I went and I flew to Chicago and I interviewed well, I mean, I'd already been accepted, I guess, but I wasn't, so it wasn't an interview. It was kind of just like meet and greet type of thing. Mm-hmm. And he, like I told him, I mean, he knew what I was going to work on. He read my proposal and everything. And he was really nice. And he just said, like, that's great. I think it's, a, you know, great, but I just, I'm not going to be much of a help. I have no interest in Thailand. I'm interested in the vernacular. And like, I'll like work with you on Polly. And I'm like, well, that's not what I want. <laughs> like, yeah. And so like, you know, I didn't go, I didn't study with him. Um, and so it's really in this, that was in 90, 98. And, um, you know, he, he seemed, he seemed exhausted, you know, like, uh, I mean, he had just published the Nirvana book and um, I don't know, he, he, he wasn't, he changed so much. And, you know, once I was in a doctoral program and, we started to meet up. We met in Thailand and I gave a talk early on and like my first year as a professor in Chicago, we just ended up, he visited Harvard a couple times when I was there and like gave a talk. Like we ended up becoming friends. Like we came up friends like outside of work. Um, I think we both smoked. Um, we both Irish. Like, I, I don't know like what it was, you know, like we talked about music a lot. Um, and like our work is so completely different and it, our approach is completely different. Our training is, you know, a little similar, but pretty different. Um, and 
our writing styles are just completely different. And like, it, it's just, I don't know. We, and so I guess Steve never trained me. He never, and you know, we wrote an article together in 2010 um, on Thai nuns and poly education. And we did field work together. And I did most, I did like the translations, the field work, like, you know, interviews and tie and things. And, you know, um, he, he, you know, his, his, there were ideas were his in the article. And then we, we went through the field notes together and we kind of saw aesthetics and beauty as kind of the most important thing out of that. I just remember, like, we always just had good conversations, but it was never something where I felt like, I want to learn this with Steve and this is Steve's contribution to my intellectual life or this is, mm. you know, I, I just never saw it that way. And um, so when you ask the big question about, I can say what I think he meant to other, but I don't, what he meant to me was just so, it was the little conversations, not really the big ideas, you know, like, and I mean, his biggest contribution, of course, is the concepts of the imaginaire. Um, big contributions is selfless persons, which is 1982, which, which is still used today. I still use it. And a lot of people, uh, Charlie Hallisey and his afterwards talks about the importance of the book. Charlie Hallisey actually is the one who gave me that book originally, I think. Um, and you know, it, it, there were so many things he was known for. And I think a lot of times it was just like his, his kind of aggression and his acerbic wit and the way he was with people. Like, it's almost like there's so many ideas he was no more, but I think sometimes Steve looms large. Like there's almost an idea of Steve more than, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really not answering your question. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. Well, look, let, let, let me go on to the next question because that's a little more specific. You, um, right. and, and that's, you, you, you talked about, I mean, he was, you know, he was educated at Oxford and I mean, in a rather, uh, what I guess nowadays we think of as a traditional manner, you know, very textual, mm-hmm. uh, not working with vernaculars. Uh, but then you talk about how, and you just gave that example of when you visited him and he said, well, I have no interest in Thailand or the mm-hmm. vernaculars. Uh, but you note that his uh, approach to today Buddhism changed during the past decade or two of his life. And in your introduction, you state, and I quote, Steve's growing interest in the world of Buddhist studies beyond the close study of Pali and Sanskrit texts in the last 20 years of his short life led him to lash out at times at his former self and his early training. So I, can you explain, I mean, I think maybe we all understand this shift. I mean, the whole field sort of shifted in, a bit in that way, but I mean, how, how's, how do you think this came through in his work? Um, I think it came through a lot of ways. I, I, Steve, I think if he was here, he would attribute that change to Nancy Eberhardt. Um, mm. Nancy Eberhardt's book really affected him and Nikki Tannenbaum's book really affected him, both working on the Shan, um, and in Burma and in Sipsong Pana area where Tom Borchardt worked, worked a lot. And, um, those two books and then Joe Cook one, I mean, Joe Cook was not his student, but she's my generation and her book, um, you know, she was doing her dissertation around the time he started getting interested in Thailand and her book really affected him too. I remember. And, um, uh, Julia Cassinetti's work when she was a got doctoral student in Chicago, Steve was affected by his students. Like he was affected. Mm-hmm. And, and he read a lot of people in like younger generations. He, he was no curmudgeon. He was no like, Oh, only old work was good. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't like back in my day. He, he was never like that. Like, um, he was like that with music, but he wasn't like that with other things. Um, and so like those books, Nancy's, I think, and Nikki especially really affected him. Affect theory, even though he never used the term affect theory, um, he early on and Hansen's work on emotions, uh, I think really influenced him. Um, and so there was a lot of intellectual interests that were changing for him. Um, but he wasn't an anthropologist. I mean, and he never wanted to be um but he was interested in kind of observing rituals and seeing he he became very interested in the way monks and nuns and lay people in a sense handled handled ideas coming from polytext and articulated Mm. them in certain ways i think that if he has stayed 
around and worked, which he said he was retiring and not working anymore. So who knows? But he certainly was becoming more interested, I know, in in kind of modern poetry in Thailand um, and hmm. modern literature. And so um, at least he talked about it a lot. He was very interested in the questions of time and madness and how modern Buddhists understood madness um, as and then related that to ideas he saw coming out of Pali narratives. Um, and and just the very concept of living in time and what time meant. These are things he never wrote up, um, but he was quite interested. He was a really dynamic mind. I mean, you, every time you met him, there was a new idea. And only about 5% of his ideas really were, you know, written. I mean, I, his wife, I, I think, was, she she really was privy to, like, I think just and and then Dan Arnold, his colleague at Chicago, were just so privy, I think, to much more than I was on a day to day basis um, by far that these ideas. And so he he changed a lot, but it was a pretty dramatic change. And and he he was angry. I don't know about angry at his former self, but he certainly he certainly like in many ways rejected it. But then he had this great reverence for Roy Norman. Um Hmm. who was his, one of his teachers who recently passed away. It's sad that his, his great teachers passed away after his student, you know, and Roy Norman, I think was 94 and, um, you know, rest in peace. And he, uh, so I know, I know Roy Norman, like was, was a big influence on, on Steve too. Um, but he did, he did change a great deal. And, but he also appreciated change in others. I think, um, like he was very excited when people came out with new ideas and he was also quite angry and impatient when people like stuck with the same idea. Like, you know what I mean? If a person gave the same talk like three or four times or versions of the same talk over five years, like Steve was very dismissive. Like, you know, he wanted people to push themselves intellectually. Um, and I think a lot of people in our field, I think a lot of people in historical fields in general or religious studies fields in general, they they push themselves in terms of learning more stuff. Like they learn more information. Um, mm-hmm. They read more texts or they learn a language better or another language or um, they go, you know, they learn more and more about, you know, less and less, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And he wasn't like that. He, he, he never really developed new skills. Like he never developed learning new vernacular languages. He never, in a sense, changed the style of his writing. He never took on like anthropological methods and theories and brought them to the field. He he was very kind of limited in terms of the theory he read, but he read it really closely. Um, and like, he wasn't just coming up, like searching out was the latest new fad of ideas or anything like that. He was really in a sense, non-expansive in his training and incredibly intellectually expansive in how he asked questions and new mm. questions he was bringing. And that I loved about him. Yeah. So, so moving on, I mean, what, one of the things that, um, and I can't remember if this is uh, covered in part one or in your introduction, but he was, um, you know, he was very skeptical about uh, our ability to know with even a modest degree of certainty the ideas, practices, and daily lives of early Buddhists and Buddhist mm. communities. And, you know, I think he 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 sort of quotes Gombrich as saying, well, you know, in, in the in lieu of any hard evidence, we should sort of take the traditions, uh, statements about the Buddhist past at face value until, you know, contrary evidence is brought to light. And he thought this was um ridiculous. And, yeah, um, yeah, that's a that's a generous term to say ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's in my introduction. So you're right. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and 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 he, um, but but then of course he didn't think studying polytexts, you know, was I mean a useless endeavor at all. I mean other no, no, people, not at all. right? And so I mean, how did his approach here? And I'm 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 kind of thinking here um, of one this idea of silence as you that you discuss. Mm. Um, of his, and then also this, um, uh, and then also this idea that really comes out in this book of polytexts, uh, not as accurately reporting, you know, history or the past or what happened, but instead as part of this sort of, uh, you know, Theravada civilization. Yeah, I know that's, that was, that's a broad was, yeah. question. I, 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 
Those are yeah. two. Yeah, those are two big. I see that. That's interesting. You're asking two questions about things that didn't really get into the final book. They were in this kind of really unformed first chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I re I didn't I didn't remove really anything. I just the first chapter was just not finished. And um, he had a preface, preliminary notes, and a first chapter that all kind of ran together. And then he had the second and third chapter, which are largely included intact in the book. I mean, with obviously, you know, I had to add footnote, I mean, end notes, and, you know, I mean, sure. I just clean up stuff, but like, you know, generally there. But the two parts you're talking about, I do include large sections of what he wrote in that draft mm-hmm. in the introduction and there one's called buddha Gosha's fantasy and that's talking mm-hmm. about the impossibility of history and um gombrich uh, richard gombrich's work and um which by the way like he's criticizing that idea but um there wasn't a there wasn't a malicious intent against oh, of course not. Of course I, not. I never got that in uh, you know steve attacked ideas he didn't attack people Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes maybe, but, um, but, but yeah, but the, the interesting part about the impossibility of studying early Buddhist history, um, yeah, he believed in studying polytext, but, you know, he really studied polytext as he would often say, like the way you should study in a sense, Shakespeare, or the way you should study Tolstoy, like, you know, the way you should study, you know, Homer, like that you can read stuff for history. Um, and you can try to reconstruct daily life or, you know, do minutiae studies of like what material and metallurgy and jewels are mentioned and try to trace every place name and, and date accurately through a philological analysis and uh, coupled with archaeological evidence, every historical thing. And you're always just going to come up with, with with huge gaps and that. Um, and he was quite critical of using Buddha Gosha or what he called the committee of Buddha Gosha. Uh, he didn't come up with that term, Yanamoli did, but um, mm-hmm. about like using him to, in a sense, construct the first thousand years of Buddha or even 1200 years of Buddhist history. And so he was quite critical of that. Um, and he called this Buddha Gosha's fantasy. Um, yeah. Let me read part of this. What This is Steve's words. I, I'd rather him speak for himself. Sure. So he wrote, um, although some pre-Buddhagoshan textual sources and languages other than Pali do exist, all of them from the first five century AD, almost all modern scholarly accounts of early Buddhism, with only a very few exceptions, rely on the Pali canon, usually translations of it, of course. I call this Buddhagosha's fantasy, not because I wish to criticize it or be supercilious about it, but simply as a phrase depicting the Pali canon as a rosy a textual world of the imagination collected and instructed by Buddha Gosha as early days. But how much earlier? The evidence, as opposed to an over-optimistic, self-deluding guesswork, says it was just at the least, the very least 500 years and a very long time than is now. I use the word fantasy in a sense given the Oxford English Dictionary's imagination, the process or faculty of forming mental representations of things not actually present. Perhaps when Buddha Gosha collected and constructed as the canon was historically accurate, perhaps it wasn't. We won't, we don't, and we will never know. And I I I, I agree with that. I, I I'm not an early textual scholar. I I'm not um never have attempted to be not interested. I think I read a lot of it, I, I learn from it, um, I give it to my students, certainly. Um, but I do agree that you know that. Um, when we read this, we have to read it as ideas and we you know, mm-hmm. not have to, but I think the value of it is reading the ideas, which mm-hmm. are just as relevant now as they were then. And that there's so much rich story in, in whether it's narrative literature at this time or what Steve called systematic literature um, or that there's so much. And so a good historian of Denmark would not read it. Shakespeare's Hamlet for accurate histories of Denmark, right? Like, right. I mean, there's an, you know, like, yeah, okay. We might say a place name Elsinore, you know, okay. Like, um, and, you know, but it's much more interesting to know in a sense that like Shakespeare might've lost his son Hamnet to death, you know, his son died 
And that emotional cost led him to write something called Hamlet that took place, happened to take place in Denmark, right? Or Maine, mm-hmm. or he just invented Denmark, <laughs> you know what I mean, in his mind. Yeah. Like, like I don't, I'm not a Shakespeare scholar, but you know what I mean? Like, like, like that's, and the thing is the lessons from it and the things we can relate to and the kind of soap opera quality of it. Um, and I mean, so we're in a good way and like this kind of dramatic, you know, clash between humans and their emotions that mm-hmm. timeless. Like Steve wanted to make poly literature relevant to everyone. He wanted it mm, to be yeah, read yeah. as world literature, the same way you would read, you know, Atar's Book of the Birds or the El Cid, or you would read Josephus, or you would read Thucydides, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or yeah. would you would read Mark Twain, for God's sakes. Like, like he, you know, for him that, he was this trained philosopher, studied classics, um, who got was very good in languages, who loved the world of ideas. He he loved the ideas of Buddhism, and he thought, well, these are really interesting ideas, and if we just relegate them to the study of the history of these mystical others, then they'll always just, in a sense, be in this corner of the humanities, and they should be at the heart of the humanities. They should be in discussions of any time we talk about world philosophy, philosophies of psychology, world literature, anything. They should be part of the conversation. And I think that's in many ways why he liked the University of Chicago, Um, even though he was in the South Asian Studies Department. He liked the fact that he was working with students across the humanities. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, just to, I mean, you you have a nice quote. These are your words for the book that kind of uh, s- sort of uh, reinforces what you were saying there. And, um, you know, it said, you, you write, Steve wanted to get away from the idea that we could use polytext to reconstruct a Buddhist past and to value it instead as beautiful and complex literature to wander in and wonder with. This book is a product of not dismissing Buddhist literature written in classical languages. Indeed, he, um, but for Steve, literature was like music, something to delight in and be inspired by, not historicize or use as evidence of something else. So. Yeah, I yeah, I music music with that yeah. Um, well, I sound pretty good there. No, <laughs> um, no, but uh, I forgot about that. Um, but um, I would say no. That Steve music was hugely important to Steve. I mean, his, his metaphors that he used, conversations that he started. You know, the way some people like like you know when I got on the Sixers Lakers game was ending and Sixers won, won by one, which is great. Um, and like white before we started. And like, you know, I grew up in a sports household. I didn't really play, you know, and so I would use sports metaphors for things, right? Um, my dad, um, you know, drove trucks and talked about cars and like, you know, he, so I used car metaphors a lot, right? Like Steve was in the world of music. Like he, he talked in, in musical ways. Um, he got along very well with my son. My son's a jazz musician. Hmm. And Steve and him, like, just, they only met two or three times, but, like, just had the most wonderful conversations. Actually, Steve's um, wife, when I was going through his library after he passed away, she must have given me a hundred books on the history of jazz to give my son. Like, it, it was just, um, and I just, he really had this mind where he didn't, like, Charlie Hallisey put this very well in the afterwards, I think. Um, you know, that, I mean, he stressed this point that Steve, Steve always said that, you know, in a sense, Buddhists were humans first, right? Mm-hmm. And not everything they thought about was religious and not everything they thought about was Buddhist in a sense that, and Steve was a human being first, like that um, the listen, going to the jazz show and having a nice walk and a good talk and a nice meal, like was, was as important as pouring over, you know, Foucault, you know? Mm-hmm. And and in that way, I think the students found him very um, infectious. I think they also found him very frustrating because, in a sense, um, it was maybe this is where Steve and I are similar. <laughs> it's hard to like stay on on point, you know, because like, it was always conversations are always expansive. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, all on terrible sides. Steve's sides were just so much more interesting than mine. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so so um, I I should mention for listeners too that um, I mean maybe we should get into this, but uh, Collins also had very strong views about translation, and mm-hmm. um, you know writes a lot in this book about um, you know certain ter- you know certain terms that we should use or shouldn't use, or the way in which. Uh, he seems to have had strong opinion about not using theological, ter- like ter- English words, for example, borrowed from, you know, Christian theology or monastic institutions or whatnot. But um, and so, um, but anyway, listeners will have to read this book to uh, look at all that. But there's um, a lot of that that was cut out. Uh, yeah, um, Steve. Yeah, Steve. Steve wasn't. I. You know, he was a translator, obviously, but what. You know, in many ways, Steve's what is an etymologist. Like he loved the history of words. Um, yes, yes. The, um, so, so the so the book has this really nice introduction where uh, you sort of give this, where you also talk about the parts of the book that you ended up not including, um, and quote a lot from it. Um, and then it's got this very nice afterwards by Charles Hallisey. And then the main section of the book, or the book itself, is this: uh, these two sections, one titled "Wisdom" and the other "Practices of Self." And then there's a very uh, short conclusion. And uh, as opposed to other interviews, I'm not going to try to sort of go through and summarize the whole book. Partly, partly because you're not, even though you were. I mean, this book is part yours, you know, since you're not Steve Collins, but also because I think the nature of this work is just, um, it's so, uh, there's so much detail. Yeah. You, um, ha- you have, this is, this is the type of book that you don't look in the index and discover the term you're interested in read those two pages or read the introduction, get the argument and leave it alone. Like this is a book you have to sit with. You, you almost have to read it in a sense as like a guide for daily living. Like it, it's a, it's a very reflective book. Um, and it's non like informational. Like I, you're not going to learn about Buddhism, but you're going to learn in a sense, as Charlie Hallis used to say um, uh, to me when I was a student is that, uh, and to all the students, uh, you have to learn from it. And I, mm-hmm. I really do, do think that's it. Um, is that, you know, as Levi Strauss would say, you know what I mean? This book is good to think with, you know? Mm, yes. Um, and but, it's, yeah, it's, you're not going to, you're picking up this book. I don't think you're going to learn one thing about Buddhist history or Buddhist stories. You might read a few really fascinating, fun stories, but mm-hmm. you'll certainly learn a way of thinking about Buddhism and thinking about literature and thinking about the meditative life, the contemplative life this, you know, he hated the term spiritual, but, um, yeah, reflective life, you know? So, so, so I, I, so I just wanted to mention the sort of main thrust of, um, I mean, not, not summarize it, but just the, some part of the main thrust of the first and section sections in the first uh, section entitled wisdom. It's, it focuses on the, it focuses on the, uh, Jataka stories. So these are the stories about, the Buddha's in the former lives before he became the Buddha. And, um, you know, in the history of uh, Buddhist studies, these have often, I mean, maybe not so, not so much now, but earlier at least, uh, you know, these were dismissed as sort of, you know, folklore or mm. didactic children's literature or whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, Collins instead argues that these stories had uh, more of an audience among educated Buddhist elite than did, you know, Buddhist texts about, you know, doctrinal texts. Sure. Um, and they, had, they had an audience among everyone. And, you know, he would say that they were just as sophisticated as what he would call systematic literature or doctrinal, you know, abhidhamic or uh, commentarial literature. Like, um, I mean, commentary. Um, he would say that these stories have the emotional depth and emotional complexity um, and, and theoretical in a sense, I mean, the ability to reflect conceptually on them as deep as any other types of Buddhist literature and, and any type of literature period. And so, um, and that was extremely important to him. Um, and that would say, yeah, I would say the first chapter is, is really about the wisdom, but the wisdom at that we can get through stories. Um, mm-hmm. and stories that seem to have a lot of sex and romance and adventure and murder and 
and all of the and comedy, lots of I mean, Buddhist poly narratives can be hilarious. Um, and I mean, really just you know sometimes absurd in like the things that are happening, but hilarious, but so complex in in their humor too. And um, I often just sit and read jatikas with my students. Like we just read them. And, and there are, I mean, because I'm going to do all over the place in many different languages and it's, we laugh and, and we, we get into the stories and, and Steve would too. So you would think that a, t- a chapter titled wisdom would be about the Abhidhamma or would it be about like specific Buddhist teachings on non-attachment or the five pre, the khandas or, or, um, you know, the four truths of the noble ones. And, and, you know, like you think it would be about that. And it, and it, it wasn't a, his chapter on wisdom is about story. Yeah. He, 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 he also, uh, I don't know how much I want to get into this, but I, he, he does mention in here, and then this is relevant. I mean, it's relevant in both chapters, but his, his, this distinction he made makes between um, narrative thought and mm-hmm. systematic thought and corresponding to kind of like Dhamma, Oh, Dhamma uh, one and Dhamma two, which readers of uh, Nirvana and other Buddhist philosophies will be uh, familiar with, of course. Um, I always fought with him. I hated that designation. Yeah, I, him and I argued about not argued. I always lost the argument. So is that you know what I mean? But like, I like systematic and narrative. It makes perfect. Yeah. So, so w- 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 would you just kind of explain, like, briefly, what this distinction was that he was making? Sure. He was saying that they shouldn't be ranked um, as one or the other, that somehow learning through stories was not as important as learning through doctrine. Right. And, mm-hmm. and in many ways, I, it, it was hard to identify what, you know, if you really think about it, there's not a ton of doctrine sometimes. in Buddhism, Right. Like that it is almost it's a lot of story like narrative really dominates the pages. I mean, even in the Vinaya, like the Vinaya commentaries, and so it's just lots and lots of stories. And, mm-hmm. and suttas are stories in a sense, right? And the Jatakas are stories, and the Dhammapada Atikata, which is very popular stories, and you know the whole, you know, uh, Kudakadikaya, like is is stories. I mean, not all stories, but a lot of them, and or witty aphorisms and things like that. That um, that these shouldn't be dismissed as like stories or miracle tales or stories for children or stories for a popular audience. And that the Abhidhamma, which not many people really read, um, is in, I mean, the actual seven volumes they read in, you know, anthologies and, and commentaries and things like if they read them, um, are, is reserved for higher scholars. And, um, you know, so that, you, but you can learn, as he said, systematically. Mm-hmm. You know, if this happens, do this. If this happens, do this. Or if you confront it with the problem of good, this is what's happening. This, 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 and this. And you know, mm-hmm. you have you know the Abhidhamma in terms of it's about senses and the body and bodily reactions and emotional reactions and the construction of the person and personhood and relations in society. And and so it reads like a phone book in some ways, right? It's you know mm-hmm. what Heidegger would say, you know, documentary. Like it, it, it's like systematically going through an instruction manual of daily uh, or of the way the mind works right and mm-hmm. narrative is about all the things in between like it's it's all the stories we tell and all the stories we tell about ourselves to ourselves um mm-hmm. every person's biography in a sense is the story they tell themselves right and they tell themselves that story differently every time and every person they meet they tell in a slightly different way right and we're mm-hmm. surrounded by people's stories so much so when we describe other people, when like if we so say I'm talking with my son about a person I met on the subway, I would tell like, oh, this person had an interesting story. Let me tell you about what this person said. Like, you know, and then it, their story that I was telling that will become my story. And then he might think that was funny and tell somebody else and become their story. Right. That we learn through narrative, we learn through stories, we learn how to relate in the world. And Steve often talked about like how we teach each other and how we give advice to each other, and that we, in a sense, um, allow somebody to interweave their stories with ours. And uh, that um, poly narratives did this because 
you would have these really great stories and so many of them, there would be just endless content for sermons and endless contents for sitting around monks and nuns sitting around or lay people sitting around and telling stories that in a sense, people would figure out ways of acting through the stories. And more importantly is that there were so many characters in Polly's stories that in a sense, you could find a character you could relate to at different times in your life. Like sometimes you would be this character in your life. Sometimes you'd be this character. There's so much intrigue and betrayal and love and loss and death and relations between mothers and children and siblings and questions about power and questions about longing and and questions about disease and death and questions about duty and where to be a good daughter or a good son. Like there's just so many stories that everyone can relate to them. Everyone's lost someone. Everyone's gone through this type of struggle. Everyone questions their identity. Everyone questions what they should do with their life. Everyone questions why wouldn't this person love me? And like any question that you ever have, any story that you involve in, any story that you're living right now will be present in so much poly literature. There are just so many stories. It's an endless number of examples. So you, you can live in it. You can place yourself. And then second thing you can do is that in a sense, you don't get an easy answer. Like just as nothing in life is easy, is that it's always complex. There's always overdetermined reasons. Everything happens. And there's never a yes or no answer is that these stories don't give a definitive answer about how you're supposed to solve a problem. They make you go through what the characters go through. And at the end, in a sense, you're still struggling about, do I agree with what this character did? Would I have done the same thing? And so you, in a sense, you don't give an answer, but you live the question, you live the struggle. And then finally, in a sense, you you realize through reading these stories, and I think Steve would really argue this, that you're not alone, that whatever pain you're going through, you're not alone. And um, that there's such a value and wisdom to that is that, let me imagine this. This is something that Steve and I talked about once a long time. Imagine someone comes to you and says, like, they're really struggling. And they're thinking about getting an abortion, right? And they're, it's a, it's a, you know, they're, it, it's not a political thing. It's not a choice, pro-life or pro-choice. It's not that. It's that they don't, you know, they know it's not the right time in their life. They, they know it's not the right person they want to be with, but they don't know. Maybe they can make it work. What if this child, you know, could grow up and just be wonderful? What, what if their parents had aborted them? Like they're, they're talking to you and they're, they're bearing their, you know what I mean, pain to you. Mm. And you sit to them and you say like, well, Roe v. Wade said this, and you said that, well, the Bible says this and this, and there is this is when the life starts, and this is when a soul begins, and this is a child at three weeks can feel pain or in a, has fingernails at eight weeks or whatever, right? And they right. say, well, you know what? You should read the uh, WebMD about this. This is what they say about abortion procedures, and these are the laws it says. You, wouldn't, you would not listen to that friend. You would walk <laughs> away. You would say that's the worst advice I've ever gotten or even worse. They don't give you a lot of information. They tell you what to do. You should definitely have this child because every child matters. Or you should definitely have an abortion because fuck that guy. Like he, you know, he's not somebody you should have a kid with. Like you would not want that advice either. You wouldn't want a definitive answer, right? What mm-hmm. you want is the person to sit with you, relate stories that they've heard, films that they've seen poems that they've read, friends that they knew in the past that might have had an abortion, um, a great, you know, play that they once saw about this. You know, you would want them to tell you stories. You would want them to listen and sit with you and share their story of pain. Maybe they haven't gone through that exact thing, but they have gone through, well, they didn't know if they should be with the right person, or they didn't know if there was such an idea of a soulmate, or they didn't know, you know, you would want to hear them share a story because you were sharing a story. And for Steve, that was so important. It wasn't systematic knowledge. In a sense, it's fine and good. You learn from it. You document it. You shelve it, right? It becomes what I like to call, Steve didn't use this term, but Lauren Matori, um, I like a scholar of um, um, uh, West Africa and Brazil. He, what he talked about was trait geographies. Like, 
we can know the traits of people. We can know the traits of Buddhists. They believe this. There's this number of them. They live in this country. They produce this number of texts. They produce these texts at this state. That's a traits of somebody. You get a trait geography of the people. That's what we're saying, right? Um, but Steve wanted to see the processes of way people think, right? And and this, even though that's coming from a Tory, and, and I certainly abide by that, like, like, Steve, I think, would agree with that, that he, he would say, in a sense, it's the, the way people think and the way that they work through problems are more important in terms of learning from that than the answers to the problems themselves. Mm. So, so that kind of relates to the, 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 the second chapter in the book, mm. uh, pr- Practices of Self. And, and uh, here in this chapter, uh, Colin says that one of the reasons he wrote this book was to, and I'll, I'll quote here, provide some comparative material to the work of Pierre Hadot on, to use the standard slogans, spiritual exercises and philosophy as a way of life, and to that of Michel Foucault on practices and technologies of self and subjectivity and truth. So he, he's trying to sort of, I you know, put uh, Theravada Buddhism into, or a certain aspects of it into kind of conversation, but, and, and, and this part of the book is incredibly rich and we can't summarize it here. I don't think we should try, but one of the arguments that he's making in this part is that, um, and again, he goes through a very, uh, 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 fascinating argument to get here, but he, he basically, um, argues that, uh, ultimate truth is only expressible through nouns and adjectives, Mm -hmm. not through verbs and, Going back to his distinction between narrative thought and systematic thought, uh, you know, he says narrative thought requires verbs. And his conclusion from that is that ultimate truth cannot be expressed in language, which kind of makes me think. And I I don't think I followed the argument through this entire. I mean, I I got a little lost at parts of this chapter, but it seems what you just said kind of. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I mean, what you were saying, he says, like, it, it kind of echoes some things in the first chapter where it's like these are the stories that sort of, you know, kind of uh, tell people how to live. But basically he says that argues, he concludes here that, you know, practices of the self necessarily require what he calls consensual truth, which is related to narrative thought. And so mm-hmm. it's, um, I mean, I don't, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think, you, you know, it is very hard to summarize. And I, I think, yeah, he he would say that like it, learning ultimate truth or or it, it's part of your entire body. It, it's part of a lifestyle. It, it, it's not just meditation. He, he criticized this as like you read and then you meditate. No, it's part of in a sense the way you know Foucault's understanding of like the technology of the self. It's it's this part of self forming, right? And he liked the term exercises, you know, from Hadot and that. Um, that any any Steve was a great student of Catholic monastic history and um and 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 we got along that way as well because that's something I I went to a monastic high school um I grew up very super Catholic and um and so you know this was a really big part of my education and this work really resonated with me and I you know when I read Steve's stuff on this early on he, he's written about this for a long time um, and he's been thought he thought about this for a long time is that, you know, he wanted to see, like, in a sense, the physicality of knowledge, how you sleep, how you eat, how you walk, um, you know, how you meditate, how you garden, you know, like um, that. These were all very, very important actions and that that was part of a larger truth in and that you couldn't simply like pick up something and read it and know it. You, you had to, you had to live it. And, um, you know, he used the term like physical imagination, like, you know, there's a physicality to, to everything. Um, mm. and that, um, it, but he was really, he wasn't like against like mindfulness and yoga and all these things, but he was against that. If you did this as kind of a separate task, you know, mm. A larger monastic life, um, which he saw as a very social life, actually interesting. You know, he that was one of the etymol, like you said, etymologies. He hated this idea that monks were associated with like being, you know, 
Um, you know, he, he thought it was a, a misnomer that in a sense, it was this idea of being uh, isolated and non-worldly, right? That, that he saw in a sense as something that it was a different type of homosocial, you know, society um, and a choice to be unmarried. You know, he was against the way we translate celibacy. Celibacy sounds like not having sex, but he would say in French, it would mean, you know, non-unmarried. And like that these were religious, unmarried religious professionals they weren't isolated monks meditating in caves. They, they were social beings, um, but they took, in a sense, the art of daily living seriously. And they, the physicality of their life and the cerebral nature of their life were something that were intertwined. Um, and he, he, he stressed this. Um, and I think that goes like what I was saying about music is that, you know, one part of his mind and one part of his body, like moving his body, listening to jazz, wasn't wholly different from reading a poly text, right? That, that they were part of a larger kind of technology of the self. And, um, you know, he, this, it is a complicated section. And I included parts of what were in the original introduction of the book in, in my introduction that I, I, I hope, in his words, I think summed it up um, pretty well. Um, and I'd like to read just one passage of what Steve wrote. Um, sure. These are these technologies of self he's talking about relating back to Foucault. He's saying these are techniques which permit individuals to affect by themselves a certain number of operations on their own bodies, on their own souls, on their own thoughts, or on their own context. And this way to transform themselves, to modify themselves and to obtain certain states of perfection, of happiness, of purity, of supernatural power and so on. Let's just call this kind of techniques a technique or technology of the self. And then he goes on, he says, again, what he says, indeed, what he learned. Well, I wrote this, but what he learned from Hadou and Foucault, especially in practice of the self, fits very well with the Theravada Buddha project. And then this is Steve writing. Steve says, the phrase exercises and practices of the self could be taken very widely indeed. So why did they become almost useless as an instrument of comparison? Those of my readers who have had children or even have younger siblings grow up will know that all parents and obviously all societies have to teach children everything. In Foucault's terms, they have to be taught how to behave in any and every domain, how to walk, eat, deal with waste matters, speak, and in what languages to speak, how to dress, how to interact with others physically and mentally, the entire process of acculturalization um, in this sense, in all societies, all civilizations, all cultures, is a cultivation of a certain kind of self, a certain kind of subject of experience and action restricted to each community's mores. One might say acculturization um, is a universal necessity, but there's no universal culture. Selves are always constructed in specific times and places in specific ways. The results differ widely, but the process is the same. This learning of specific forms of physical and mental self-control, this ascesis from childhood on, and the interjection of culturally specific ideas is part of what constitutes sanity in any, and that's his interest in madness, in any given social context. The interjection and performance of certain basic components of human sociality what he also says called morality, which is human social sociality is morality, can be a kind of wisdom. Promulgated at length in Buddhist text is helpful in this context. Remember that the French word sage, when used of children, can mean both wise and well-behaved. And the formation which refers to both school and university education, the inculcation of a certain kind of subjectivity, of forming a certain kind of character. And this was hugely important. And in a sense, a self was cultivated, right? And it wasn't mm. cultivated alone. It was cultivated in a society. And in a sense, Buddhism provides a wisdom of how that's done in that specific context. And that specific context can teach us things, just as a Catholic monastic context can teach something, but just also as a university <laughs> campus can teach something about how the body comports, in a sense, learns wisdom through physicality and through sociality. And, mm -hmm. and and not just moral teachings, right? But and systematic teachings. And, and uh, I thought he used Foucault and Hadot. And I, the funny thing is, you know, I had read Hadot when I was a long time ago, 
And I thought it was kind of trite, to be honest with you. I, I, I just thought, like, what is the big deal about this? Like, this is like, you know, like anybody who's grown up religious would understand this, right? But Steve made me read it in a much more profound way. And also, in a sense, Steve made me respect, in a sense, my own tradition and like my own, like own rituals in ways that I never did. Like, um, you know, that when you live and breathe the physicality of a religion and, um, and I, and I, you know, I never reflected upon that growing up. And, um, and I think a lot of my students don't do that. They, they come to Buddhism because they want to learn cool Buddhist ideas or who hear about cool monks and nuns. And like, they don't want to, in a sense, change their lifestyle. All. They just want to add on new knowledge to it and, and a new cool story to tell someone. But like, this idea of saying, well, what would it mean to comport myself and transform myself in these certain monastic ways? And then what would it mean to read texts doing that? I actually teach a class where students have to take dress restrictions, eating restrictions, sleeping restrictions, like, and they have to do it for three months. And I have to say my students, in a sense, read Pali in very, very different ways after going through that experience. You know? and, mm. and, and Steve, in a sense, him and I talked a lot about this, too. And, um, he loved the monastic life. He loved being around monks and mankind. And, and, you know, I, he delighted in it. He delighted in learning and watching people's lives. And, and he was monastic in his own way, like in his own, like dress, even like, he, God sakes, he seemed to only have one shirt and one, no, he had two shirts. I remember, <laughs> you know, I mean, he had many more than two, but like, I would just always see him in just one of two shirts and like one pair of black jeans. And like, um, like he, you know, he, that he loved Weber and like Tolstoy because they led these like monastic lives, but were lay people. Like, you know what I mean? And like, yeah. yeah. And so like, I don't know, like this for him, the body mattered. Right. And then sadly his body failed him, you know, and it failed him. So he's so young. You know? and so, yeah. Well, I think that's probably a good note to end on. I mean, I mean, I think listeners will realize that, um, it's an extreme from our conversation that it's an extremely rich book. It's I, I've, I mean, I've read Collins. Um, I use some of uh, Collins Nirvana, both Nirvana books in some of my classes and, mm. and um, good choice. <laughs> you know, and, and I can say is that what I can say is that I always find his reading like slow going mm. and hard going, but reward rewarding. Yeah. Very rewarding and something that you, I can, you know, one can go back to and, you know, many times. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's great. I think I'm, I'm, and your students are lucky. You know, your students yeah. are, and, and, and uh, we all are. We all are yeah. lucky. I mean, Steve, um, my life will never be the same, you know. Well, I want to thank you again, uh, Professor McDaniel, for taking the time to speak with me today um, and to our listeners. And that's it for today's New Books in Buddhist Studies. See you next time. Thank you very much.